And side note, I'll just share one little thing that I have. A couple girlfriends won't name them, they'll choke me. But we have this sisterhood of the floating 20. And we don't keep track of who has the 20 or why you need the 20. You know, if you need to get your nails done, go get that. We need that, that space for joy. So, um, gosh, I started thinking about, like, how can that be the sisterhood of the floating hundred or, the, you know, something like that. Tia Hall is on the leadership team at Spirit House, a social justice and cultural organization in Durham, North Carolina. Like so many of the people I talked with about guaranteed income, she believes that caring for your loved ones and caring for yourself are not two separate things. When you're struggling to make ends meet, that becomes both harder and more important. My conversation with Tia brought up so many of the themes we've explored over the last three episodes around deservedness, how impossible we've made it for people to get what they need, and how we would all be better off if more of us were better off. I'm Mia Birdsong, and this is the final episode of More Than Enough. As she talked about the sisterhood of the floating 20, Tia moved almost immediately from talking about scaling this informal network of support to the weight of feeling scrutinized for what you do with the money. I just know what it, it means to like sit and just be stressed about the bills. And then if somebody helps you, then this feeling of how do I make sure that I show that I'm accountable and a good steward of the money and that they don't see me out spending a little extra because, you know, we have this uniform for what you're supposed to look like when you're poor. So a poor person can't have anything extra that, and I would want to, take that um, that burden off. Part of what has been so striking for me as I've learned from the people I've been in conversation with is that they've challenged me to excavate the ways I still hold to a bootstrappy, hard work is proof of deservedness orientation. I still hold this not for people who are getting screwed by systems that are clearly rigged against them, but I hold this belief toward myself. I slip through the cracks in the system and get to live what appears to be a very traditional American dream reality with my house and husband and kids and dog. I'm very easy to hold up as an example that it's possible to be born a poor black girl in America and make it. Yes, I have and do work my ass off. Yes, I am smart and amazing and shiny. And it's much more pleasing for my ego if I focus on my talents and abilities as the primary reason for my success. But that's a lie. It's a lie that is used to tell others who grew up like me that they are failures if they haven't made it. And it's a lie that is used to tell me that I'm better than people who don't make it and therefore more deserving. My proximity to the American dream is seductive. There's comfort in believing the myth because it looks and feels awfully good for me but it's just a veneer of comfort, and it doesn't even provide what it promises. And ultimately, it leaves too many people behind. You lose money when you don't come in, so if your kid is sick and you can't come to work, you're not making any money then. There's this uh, sense of shame, like, Maybe I didn't make the right decision. Maybe my family didn't make the right decision and this is why we're in this space. What I'm learning and having reinforced over and over is that this is very systemic. 
Um, it's structural, it's intentional. This didn't happen overnight. And so it's not going to be undone overnight. Well, there are communities of color in the United States that have been extracted from for so much time and disenfranchised in every possible way, but that gap is a lot larger than it is for a lot of white folks. Everybody's gotta eat. Everybody's gotta have a place to live. If you don't have access to that through like a traditional economy, you're gonna find access to that through um, through like a black market economy or through an underground economy. There, you have no option other than to eat. There's so much money. There's so much wealth that is concentrated into so few people's hands. That's not because they work hard. That's not because they're smarter than everyone. That's because we as a country have allowed for that within the structure of our economy and the structure of our economic system. And we can decide not to allow that anymore. Anytime I go big vision, America implodes. Like it just would not, not like, not like destroy everybody, but like it would not exist the way that it currently does. Cause I feel like in order to actually pay back reparations to folks, like the country as we know it would, would have to like be completely demolished and start from the beginning. I started this project because I know that solutions that don't include the voices of those who are most impacted are doomed to fail. I wanted to bring the voices of folks who are struggling to make ends meet into the guaranteed income conversation. If guaranteed income is an attempt to provide people with more resources, resources that come with very few restrictions, it demands a conversation with the people who would most benefit from it. It also demands a conversation about deservedness. When we ask, how much would it be? Who would get it? And how would we pay for it? What we are really asking is who deserves more and who doesn't. I'm not the only one who thinks guaranteed income is a realistic option. Believe it or not, President Nixon almost moved forward with a guaranteed income program in 1969. Current presidential hopeful Andrew Yang advocates for guaranteed income as part of his platform. There have also been pilots in Canada, the Netherlands, Scotland, and Iran. It's actually being tried right now in the United States. Aisha Nyandoro's project, the Magnolia Mothers Trust, which you heard about in episode two, has been running a guaranteed income project in Jackson, Mississippi. The city of Stockton, California, and its mayor, Michael Tubbs, are also running a demonstration. They are working to build an economy that grants everyone the right to have enough to get by. Mayor Tubbs has this to say about the project. So I think this demonstration is important because we're challenging the notions of deserving. I think the argument we're making is that as an American, um, as a citizen, as a human being, you deserve an economic floor. You deserve to have the basic necessities met. Um, especially when you think of the fact that the majority of poor people work. Um, and if folks don't work, it's because they don't work for a variety of reasons. Whether they can't find jobs because of records, or because they're taking care of a sick parent, or because they're staying home and doing child rearing. There's a lot of reasons why. Um, so, so yeah, I think I'm most excited about that conversation because we've been having over the past year Stockton is the first city in the United States to try out guaranteed income. And like me, Mayor Tubbs first heard about guaranteed income in college and is interested in its application not in some utopian future, but right now. Well, the first time I heard of guaranteed income was in college when I read Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos Our Community by Dr. King. I spent a lot of time studying Dr. King, reading his biographies, listening to his speeches. Um, but that part of his legacy was never taught to me. Um, I was familiar with the Poor People's Campaign 
I knew towards the end of his life he was moving towards civil rights, including economic justice. But I never heard this idea of guaranteed income. So when I read it, I was fascinated. I said, oh, wow, what happened with this idea? Where, where has it gone? And, now, and I thought it would be really interesting to see what would happen in kind of this generation and seeing if we could bring this idea back um, as an answer not to a future that was uncertain, but to the present. And here he is talking about what he's been learning as they pulled together their guaranteed income project in Stockton. I know the biggest thing for me in my own learning and growth is just trusting people to be the best decision makers and actors for what's good for them and their families. And then I think in the same vein, um, just really this this ultimate agency. If you trust people, they can generally figure it out for themselves. And also this idea that people don't have money because they don't know how to manage money. When I've learned the past year that no, people don't have money to manage. So we don't know whether they can manage money or not, frankly. I get excited about guaranteed income in part because I know it could really help a lot of people. There is a real and practical power to giving people cash. But another thing I appreciate about it is that it presents us with an opportunity to rethink our overall approach to policy. I'm thinking about policies that impact education, healthcare, land use, and the safety net system, all of that, but also policies that we should understand as social policy, like tax structures and banking regulations. We need to look at both policies that could create a solid floor beneath us, as well as policies that create a ceiling, because unfettered wealth hoarding by those at the top of the money scale has a direct cost to those at the bottom. If we want a just society, we have to address multiple inequalities, including the fact that some of us don't have enough because some of us have too much. Those with too much will have to give some of it back. Policy is, in many ways, a proxy for how we want to treat each other, a way for us to say what we think other human beings should have. For all of our sakes, we need policies to reflect a better, kinder, more generous version of who we are. Of course, we don't have to wait for guaranteed income to do things differently. Here again is Ai-jin Poo of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, exploring the false choices we are given when it comes to both economic and social policy. Um, so I often think that we're given false choices. And a lot of the questions that I get asked about, isn't this another big expensive entitlement program? Actually, no, it's like we are paying in really expensive ways expensive both emotionally and financially um, for these things anyway. And what we need to be doing is figuring out how we create new, um, much more effective programs that actually help us achieve our goals, which is to support people to work and have their families too. She also makes clear that universal programs like guaranteed income are just a starting point. So more universal programs, like universal basic income and universal family care, that kind of set a new starting point for the 21st century that reflects the realities of how work is structured and how families need to be structured in order to support um, a new kind of well-being in the future. Of course, families need to take responsibility and save and, um, and be responsible, absolutely. And to me, that doesn't at all displace the need for public policy solutions and public programs that actually support families to succeed. People want to work. People want to take care of their families. Both of those things are good things. Why wouldn't we set up public structures and systems to support that? As Aijin reminds us, we can tackle multiple challenges at once, addressing the tensions and conflicts that those challenges give rise to, 
and be kind to each other in the process. She also reminds us that there is plenty to go around. One piece that I think is really important to always say is that our economy is actually pretty healthy in that it's generating a ton of wealth. Um, it's just that that wealth isn't getting to the everyday people who are helping to generate it. I want to spread that money around. I want the big, bold policy that she's talking about. And I also want the kindness and care she's talking about. I know we're capable of having both because we see it in a wide variety of communities all the time. There are formally and informally organized groups of people all over the country who insist on thinking expansively about their resources and start from a place of fundamentally caring about each other. One of the places I see it happen most often is among Black women. It's in Tia Hall and her friend's Sisterhood of the Floating 20. It's behind the Black Panthers' free breakfast program and the Montgomery bus boycott. It's behind the movement to end the money bail system and the movement for Black lives. I talked about this particular way that Black women have of being in community with philanthropic futurist Trista Harris. There's something special in general about Black women, and it has to do with getting things done. And so, you know, if you want something done, have a Black woman do it, because it's the ability not just to, like, hustle and do the work, but it's also to bring together the community that's necessary for it to happen. And so I think the, the sort of secret sauce for Black women is about having a network of support and people that you can pull together at different times. And that social capital is what makes amazing things happen. So how do we connect with those people and deepen those relationships? I think for a lot of communities, they've lost those networks and those relationships a long time ago, and they're really hungry for those again. So I think um, black women have held on to those things because we have to. Um, it is, it's the only way to stay sane in this, in this country and raise your family and, and do the things that you have to do, is you need to have people. Um, I think for a lot of communities, we've gotten to the place where everybody feels like they're on their own and you have 2,000 Facebook friends, so that must mean that I have people, but nobody to take me to the hospital when I'm sick. So how do we deepen communities um, so that more people have what Black women have? This way of being is not exclusive to Black women, but Black women have been living and thriving in suboptimal conditions for centuries and have therefore innovated beautiful ways to live and be in community that America at large should learn from. As I think about where we go from here, there is of course a need for our civic engagement around economic justice. And there are links on our website, morethanenoughpodcast.com, for you to find places to plug in. Anytime I start thinking small about what's possible for me personally, or what I think is possible when it comes to making change in the world, I remind myself how big my ancestors had to dream for me to be here. I know that back in the day, there were some people who opposed slavery in theory, but were like, slavery is too big to fail. The South will never go for ending slavery. How will we pay for it? What will all those free black people do? Let's just make slavery better. But abolitionists were like, nah, our freedom is non-negotiable. Slavery is wrong. It's morally indefensible. It needs to be ended, period. Full stop. Over the last two years, I've talked to wide-ranging audiences about guaranteed income, and one of the things that consistently gets fretted about is its boldness. People have said to me, 
What will poor people do with all that money? The right will never go for it. How will we pay for it? And I can't help but think of the people who thought that ending slavery was too hard, too bold an idea. Too many of us have become convinced that the rules, as written by fear, scarcity, and avarice, are the ones we must play by. But we don't have to. We have to be willing to dream our most courageously when it comes to policy and systems change, because we cut ourselves off from the best possible outcomes if we start compromising our ideal before we begin. As many of my wisest mentors remind me, binaries are bullshit. We can be pragmatic and utopian at the same time. Our most beautiful, far-reaching righteous ideal is what points our incremental strategic steps in the right direction. We didn't create this podcast to explore the details of how to implement a guaranteed income. This podcast is about learning from the voices that have been excluded from our national discussions about economic injustice and inviting us all to think more deeply about what we all deserve. Ultimately, the conversations I had with the people you've heard from in this series made me less interested in whether or not guaranteed income becomes a policy and more interested in more of us believing in and fighting for everyone's fundamental dignity and deservedness. Cornell West once said, justice is what love looks like in public. I'm inspired by a future in which our public policies and practices are expressions of love. And I'm excited to build a world in which each of us has our needs met, is cared for and loved so deeply that we give freely to others because we know we have more than enough. More Than Enough was developed by Next River Productions, created and hosted by me, Mia Birdsong. Audio engineering and music by Nino Michella. Script development and production by Allison Cook. The content of this podcast was informed by the stories of hundreds of people across the country, only some of whom you heard from. Thank you to everyone who took their time to speak with me and share their story. Support for the production of More Than Enough was provided by a few generous folks and the Economic Security Project, an organization advancing cash-based interventions in the United States and reining in corporate monopolies. More Than Enough is a project of The Nation magazine. 